Hello, I'm Juliet Jakes, welcoming you back to the Suite 212 Sessions. As those of you who've listened to my recent conversations with artists Salona Sagar, Erica Scorti and Ty Shani and writer Owen Hathaway will know, our plan to relaunch Suite 212 as a fortnightly show with alternating free and subscriber-only episodes were put on hold by the coronavirus epidemic, which has brought much of the United Kingdom's cultural life to a standstill. Instead, I'm recording a series of interviews with contemporary artists, writers, filmmakers and others about their work conducted via Skype so apologies for the diminished audio quality, and more spontaneous than our usual output. The idea is to give a snapshot of the arts in the United Kingdom and beyond in the 21st century, through individual conversations with people about their work, seeing which political concerns engage them, and how the socio-economic conditions of their times have affected their practices. All of these will be available for free via SoundCloud, but I would still encourage you to subscribe to patreon.com slash sweet212 as they still take time to plan and record. You can also make a one-off donation at donorbox.org slash sweet-212. Today I'm talking to Yasmina Sibitz, who was born in Ljubljana, then Yugoslavia, now the capital of Slovenia, in 1979. She works in film, sculpture, performance and installation to explore soft power, how political rhetoric is deployed through art and architecture, particularly examining how cultural production is used by the state to communicate certain principles and aspirations. Through unfolding the complex entanglements of art, gender and state power, her work encourages viewers to consider the strategies employed in the construction of national culture. She represented Slovenia at the 55th Venice Biennale in 2013 with her project To Our Economy and Culture, and was nominated for the Jarman Award in 2016 and 2018, as well as winning the Mac International Ulsterbank and Charlottenburg Fonden Awards in 2016. Her recent exhibitions include solo shows at CCA Glasgow, Phi Foundation Montreal, the Baltic Centre for Contemporary Art in Gateshead, Kunstmuseum Krefeld, Aarhus 2017, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Zagreb and Belgrade, MGLC Ljubljana and Ludwig Museum Budapest, along with group exhibitions at Stirisha Herbs 19, MoMA in New York, the Guangdong Museum of Art in China, the Pera Museum in Istanbul, City Gallery in Wellington, MSUM in Ljubljana and elsewhere. Her films have been screened at the Whitechapel Gallery, CCA Montreal, the Pula Film Festival, HKW Berlin, the Louvre, Les Recontres Internationales Paris, Docfest Castle and Copenhagen International Documentary Festival. Her upcoming solo shows include Mac Leon, the Museum of Contemporary Art Ljubljana, the Arnolfini in Bristol, and the Museum der Moderne Salzburg. Her recent monograph Spielram is published by Baltic and Distance, and Nada by Kerber Verlag and Kunstmuseum Krefeld. Yasmina, welcome to Suite 212. Thanks so much, Julia. Thank you for the invitation. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. I've wanted to have you on the show since the off. Full disclosure here for listeners, Yasmina and I have actually worked together on a couple of projects recently. Your most recent film, The Gift, and your previous film, uh, Nada Part 3, the exhibition from 2017, which was part of your Jarman Award nomination in 2018. We co-wrote those scripts. So we'll come on a bit later to talk about the process through which those scripts and your other film works have been written. But I wondered if we could start off with talking about your background. You grew up in Slovenia during the period of the Yugoslav Wars and began your career in Ljubljana. So I wondered if you'd be able to talk about what it was like to grow up there, how you became interested in art and in making art while you were there, and the relationship you have with Slovenia now that you're based in London, that you establish your practice here. 
definitely is a good place to start, especially because I do fully subscribe to the idea that every artist compensates what is lacking to her or himself. And it's, you know, for us coming from the former East, it's been quite a turbulent last 10 years because we were on and off, you know, the desired exotic other. You know, we were either hotcakes or we were invisible. So this is something which I think is kind of quite an underlying motif to a lot of artists coming from those territories. And mostly and most fundamentally because, you know, we have this kind of quite abrasive relationship with the non-existent art market which of course you know within and i'm sure we're going to return to this a lot today within the kind of changed social um, economical and political conditioning of the world we will all have to realign ourselves with this but you know growing up in slovenia so i was about 10 years old when we had the war and of course slovenia was extremely lucky we only had the war for 10 days and none um, civilian casualties and we got out of that whole situation you know quite unscarred the in the short run and in terms of art of course you know former yugoslavia was incredible in terms of also establishing itself as a soft power kind of quite mega state in a way and I myself and a lot of people I work with are very much interested in these schisms that were coming out literally from the end of the Second World War. And this was a lot to do with Yugoslav diplomacy and the whole factor that this was a, you know, a relatively or a new state or a new federation that had to bring together six republics. So effectively, at least six languages, three religions, lots of cultural difference. And all of that was supposedly coming together under the baton of the South Slav republics uh, with the idea that other countries would not dominate these territories anymore. So what in effect happened is that you had a new um, sort of a new ideological space that needed its own aesthetic space. So this is what has really, really, let's say, sort of labeled my research and my practice. And it's not so much because I come from there, but I find it incredibly interesting and also really full of echo for our contemporary conditioning of failing Europe, of failing nation states and unions and federations and so on. And, you know, how we as cultural producers are kind of embedded within this whole ideological spectacle that surrounds us. And what is at stake, you know, when we take grants, when we say yes to certain political or uh, seemingly political associations, we still produce uh, we, we produce these scenographies for whatever spectacle of politics that surrounds us. And in former Yugoslavia, the super interesting part was that after the Second World War, the space was incredibly open to the West. And this is something which is not very much known effectively within the kind of broader, even, you know, uh, research situations that kind of like span outside of the kind of Yugoslav studies. But Courbusier's uh, atelier, for example, the greatest number of architects that came from any other country were, were Yugoslav architects. So architecture especially was extremely avant-garde in former Yugoslavia. Yeah. And there was a lot of exchange happening. So Yugoslav modernism was literally in line with all the kind of world's developments on, on that front, both aesthetically and technologically. Art uh, was not lagging behind that much. But what was super interesting, in my opinion, was how the Yugoslav political elite was bringing art, artistic practices into this 
unwritten social contract. So what was happening was that artists would get uh, ateliers, they would get stipendiums, there were uh, residencies in Paris and other cities where artists could go, they could travel, they would exhibit abroad. Yugoslav embassies were incredibly supportive of artists' exchange. So when an artist would come, for example, to London, even in the 80s, the Yugoslav embassy was very known for calling every single Yugoslav company, especially the banks, to say, please send your wealthy clients over to to support the artist who is doing the residency and all the works would be purchased and so on. So this is what I mean. This was, of course, like a completely non-written sort of social contract. Companies would be purchasing, especially uh, prints. So prints made by Yugoslav artists who would be sculptors, painters, uh, photographers and and so on, uh, would be producing print as that kind of general exchange or almost if you want to call it a token of artistic exchange not even kind of go into to marx at this time but you know just this idea of how culture really permeated society and i was doing a research early 2000s i was trying to kind of find so this kind of big transition period for slovenia where a lot of slovenian companies were closing and i was trying to source these still living slovenian companies that were quite well tied with the kind of national production, if you can call it like that. So, for example, this would be crystal factories, or we have Gorenia, which was a very traditional and big scale company of white goods and ceramic tiles. But they were these kind of big kind of national names in terms of, of production and also in terms of uh, how many people they employed. And I will never forget how shocked I was when I came to this company that was making tiles and all the surrounding corridors of the offices were filled with these amazing paintings onto tiles by some of the best Slovenian artists and their students. So this was really this proper permeation. And um, so, for example, also um, the Graphics Biennial in Ljubljana um, is an institution that definitely needs a mention because it's a best illustration of what I'm, I'm kind of explaining to you now. So the Graphics Biennial as an institution started literally after the Second World War. And it was the director of the Museum of Modern Art that had the idea of, let's make this biennial, biennial of of print, of graphic prints, right? This is how forward-looking they were. They didn't want to just make a biennial with, you know, the local artists. No, he wanted Picasso. And they smuggled Picasso out of Paris for this inauguration show. Of course, you know, we are talking about red bourgeoisie, to be fair. So these were all people who would, you know, make their names during, you know, the resistance fight. They were, you know, all of them were, you know, in the partisans. They would be fighting the Nazi and fascist occupators. So this was, of course, the people who were then creating the new state. But the idea of how they established culture as a interlocutor with the state power is is astounding. And I think that, you know, we can really learn a lot out of it because, you know, the years of the, the those kind of early 20 years of the functioning of Yugoslavia, art and architecture were incredibly seminal. Also for then the later the non-aligned uh, movement, the first conference of the non-aligned movement uh, happened in 1961, and this was in Belgrade. Again, Tito and the Yugoslav diplomacy used that moment to redesign the city. So they... Um, just for that occasion, managed to um, 
to 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 finish this big uh, modernist palace which they were building since 1947 so it was a long time coming but they used this as a final push to finalize this amazing and absolutely gorgeous today standing as a time capsule modernist palace the palace of federation where this first non-aligned movement meeting took place and the entirety of the interior of this place was conceived by the yugoslav artists and architects they had um, incredibly free hands in its construction in its aesthetics and when we're observing these interiors you know they are incredibly avant-garde for the time especially all the two-dimensional artworks they are really really in line with the aesthetics of the west but with this sort of caveat that they still had to be different because this was this this intermediate space that Yugoslavia tried to create through its aesthetics so neither socialist realism of uh, the Soviets or the Western aesthetics. So it was this very strange situation, of course, because, you know, politicians don't know how art and architecture that announces their new ideology needs to look, but they know how they don't want it to look. So when you're going through all these archives and these exchanges, it's absolutely fascinating because they were really bringing artists to the discussion table. So there was a project I did for Venice. You mentioned the Slovenian Pavilion in Venice, where I decided together with uh, the curator, Teoj Logar, who was then the artistic director of Škuts Gallery, to really push this idea of extreme local specifics. And it was a gamble, of course, because this is a territory that is not very well known, especially once you're looking at architectural and artistic histories. It's not well documented even amongst researchers. This is quite a new field of research. But it's more about the universal and global and transtemporal meaning of these soft power negotiations. So for the Slovenian Pavilion in Venice, we decided to bring together failed and successful national icons. So this started with really examining the Slovenian parliament. So I said, well, we kind of started anyhow with the notion of, is it still possible to represent a state? Of course, that was quite a kind of fundamental start point, which of course I have to kind of adhere to. But the idea was to really then look at, you know, where are these Slovenian icons? Are they still functional? Are they uh, just in depots? Where are the Slovenian artworks? Were these always just followers of fashion? But not only artworks, also uh, national medium of object making, of design, but all these artworks that were selected by the nation state when they were created as the representable ones. So we were working with the national collection in the Slovenian parliament and the architecture of the Slovenian parliament in a way of, you know, the ultimate state representative. And when I was doing the research there, we came across this archival transcript of a debate from 1957, I Think, which was a discussion of a member uh, of five members of jury trying to figure out who should be the artist that they will invite to depict the national emblems on the inside of this new building and what those emblems should be. Now, why this is really interesting is because this committee of five was still the same committee of five in terms of the structure and its mission, like the committee we had for our biennial selection committee. So this is, you know, more than 50 years onwards, the state structures are still the same. You still have, you know, the same amount of art historians, the same amount of architects, the same amount of politicians budding in. And even more so, one of the committee members from 1957 was the uncle of one of the committee members that we had in our committee. And of course, the two relatives were the ones who were extremely opposed to either my idea 
or the idea of the artwork from 1957, which was censored. So these kind of double games, I really like to unearth and play with as an artist to really just say, you know, how all of these is incredibly just universal and continuous. And um, in terms of the Slovenian parliament, what we also found out when we were doing the research was that artists were not only, yes, they were censored. I mean, and this was the only case of censorship really within the entire authority and art discourse from all the archives that I've worked with within the former Yugoslav modernist situation. But um, the main thing was that the artists were also sent to, to the seaside to get inspiration. They were given leave, even if it was six months, to go and research, to not uh, teach at the academy, for example, to get the inspiration and so on. So it was this, just this very strange, for us, we're, we're looking at it through the eyes of the contemporaneity, you know, completely absurdist and unbelievable space. So so this is kind of what I, you know, I've been always kind of quite interested in, in what kind of space that was producing. And it wasn't then only just former Yugoslavia that I was interested in. I was somehow trying to then, and I still am, trying to find these sort of echoes of the same situations in different national conditionings. So, for example, one, which is the one we also worked with together with you, was the Weimar situation in Germany in the late 1920s. And how Mies van der Rohe is the architect who the German state somehow uses as a cloaking device to gather this momentum to reinvent itself aesthetically and to take power from the French via its aesthetic new spectacle. I first came across your work after that biennial. I first came across your work in 2016. I'd been invited to Ljubljana to speak about my memoir at the Radice Zore Red Dawn's Feminist Festival, which is always held at Matelkova, this amazing leftist anarchist space in this former women's prison and barracks in the centre of the city, which was squatted in the 90s and turned into this performance and cultural space and discussion space. But while I was there, I went to an exhibition at MGSM in Slovenia and there was a retrospective of Slovenian art from 2005 to 15. They were showing a, a film of yours called The Pavilion, which I was immediately very struck by. It documented a pavilion built by artists from the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, Dragisha Brasovan, who had designed a pavilion for the Expo in 1929, which was initially judged to be the winning pavilion, but certain political pressures meant that the award was given to Mies van der Rohe. And obviously, thematically and aesthetically, the film struck me as very interesting. I like the film's use of voiceover. I like the film's use of people building this model of the pavilion on screen while it was being discussed and having the pavilion in the space. So I immediately became quite interested in your work, then got back to London to find that you actually live 10 minutes up the road from me. Of course, then we met <laughs> Then we met a year later at the um, close-up cinema where you're showing another work of yours called Tear Down and Rebuild, which was a staged conversation between four women using found dialogue from the kind of committee discussions that you've just talked about, asking about whether old architectural work should be preserved or rebuilt, and if so, how and why. So maybe we could talk a bit about how your work evolved once you're in the United Kingdom, how you source the dialogue for your films, how you ended up working with quite large teams and who you work with, and the scale of your projects, and how you bring different types of arts into the films. Your films have often used dance, they use music, an interesting sound design, and you know, interesting use of fashion, and interesting choices of actors in the films. So um, I wonder if you'd like to talk about how your style has, has evolved over the last few years. 
I guess my projects are always readers. They're always bodies of research that expand and take various forms. So they would always exist as an installation, as a film, as a book, so as a publication. And I guess they're kind of kind of expanded theatrical structures, I would say. And I initially started using archives because I was getting quite upset about how artists were colonizing archives without delving into them. So using them purely as a formal device. And this especially started happening with modernist histories. And not not even just with, with the kind of former East. This was also happening. So at the time I was studying at Goldsmiths and there was a there was a lot of sculptors from from Scotland who were kind of using those sort of kind of formal methods, but not necessarily looking at specific archives. But it was just kind of quite a formal exercise which was starting to get echoes elsewhere by then people kind of really taking out, especially these kind of brutalist structures, sort of Yugoslav modernism, and kind of making it devoid of, of its meaning. And I found that extremely problematic. I also found it, of course, it had to be done because it was kind of in a way also cleansing it of its initial trauma. And I always feel that, you know, art kind of has this kind of, it has to go through these, these um, kind of cycles. You know, if there's a national trauma, art has to go through it. It has to deal with it for then the next generation of artists to kind of be able to rebuild or kind of problematize something else. Because of course, you know, art and culture, it's a living thing. And we're come down to then this hat of cultural capital where, you know, you take things out and you comment, you put it back in. So, you know, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I just felt as an artist from Slovenia, being in Goldsmiths at the time, I felt that I was being more and more pushed toward notions of geopolitical exotic, of certain um, style or certain methods were expected from me in order to fulfill the market expectations. Now, because we don't have an art market in Slovenia at all, so we don't have a single private gallery, actually, it's quite a difficult thing for young artists to work with or to kind of, you know, find, find your own space you know either you're aligning yourself with it or against it and of course you know you're quite young you're you know still getting to grips with your practice and everything and it just sort of felt you know I kind of really wanted to work in an ethical way and I had a big number of friends who were architects and architectural researchers and I was observing how they were working and how they were struggling with access with just support and you know because these were histories that were not well researched there were of course a lot of archival holes now of course if you're a historian it's very difficult to work with archival holes but if you're, if you're an artist those archival holes are actually extremely flamboyant uh, free songs which kind of point to our contemporaneity and you know to the fact of questioning why those holes are there what happened to them and can we fill them with something else so we actually make explicitly apparent why these holes began or came about in the first place. And for example, the video you mentioned, The Pavilion, is a really good example of that. So this is a story which was, you know, it's extremely lacking. It's it's a myth. You know, this whole building was, of course, existent. And it was completely incredible in terms of its stylistic choice because Dragisha Brashovan, a Serbian modernist architect, got the brief which was, build us a traditional Serbian peasant house built of wood. And the form he came up with is very similar, effectively, to the Joseph and Baker house designed by Adolf Loos, which was designed in the same years. I think the Loos house is from 26. 
27 or 28, and this is 28, 29. So it's this kind of very fashionable, black and white, stripy facade. Brashovan chose this star-shaped design for the building, which looked like a ship. So again, we have this kind of visual reference to Norman Wilkinson and the razzle-dazzle camouflage. So I became really interested in this building because it was one of the three really avant-garde pavilions at that expo in Barcelona. The other one was the Swedish pavilion, which is apparently quite lost in space as well. I haven't done much research on it, but it's not that well documented. And of course, the Mies van der Rohe German pavilion, which is the, the pavilion that somehow then established the look for the entire 20th century. And, you know, so when I started doing this research, this was, you know, there was, there was very little things known about this pavilion. There were a few orta photos of the location. There were three photographs of the Spanish king visiting the pavilion, and that was it. But again, you know, by using this with its holes, you know, I can then marry it together with the Adolf Loos house, with Norman Wilkinson. And, you know, by bringing together three different projects, one which was supposedly announcing a nation state, so the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, in case of Brashovan, one who was supposedly announcing the exotic female body, that of uh, Josephine Baker, so the Adolf Loos house, and the third one, the razzle-dazzle camouflage by Norman Wilkinson, which was effectively the same design technique, which was supposedly concealing uh, the naval fleet, which, okay, that, that, of course, there's a big discussion there whether this was successful or not. But, you know, bringing together the question of female body, nation-state, and military under the baton of the same stylistic choice, the same design, I can then start talking about visibility, concealment, soft power. So this is where, where I like to work and how I, I kind of tend to build projects. And you saw the in, in Ljubljana at that point that was the video was presented, but we also then had a small publication which we did with the Museum of Contemporary Art in Vojvodina. And I tried to really bring these projects as well back to the territory as well. Now, of course, you know, our museums don't operate with, with big finances. And I think that especially for projects like or practices like mine, you know, we really need to think about how these practices will evolve because it was difficult already until now. And how we will now start to operate and also all these teams. How will I be able to bring together all these teams that I had until now? You know, how will we be able to pay them? This will be a big question to ask. We'll come back to that towards the end of the show, I think. But maybe we could talk a bit about your most recent film, The Gift, which, as I said at the top of the show, we worked on the script together for what was quite an ambitious project, which is as yet incomplete. But I know that what's projected to be the second half of the film screened at a festival in Graz in Austria uh, in September and has been screened elsewhere as well. So maybe you could talk the listeners through the concept of the film and how you chose the locations for the film, how you secured permission to film in those locations and the film that came out of, of that work. Yeah, so The Gift is definitely the most ambitious project up so far. And the main difference, I would say, to the previous projects is that The Gift really wants to look across time and space at culture as a political gift. So not so much commissions, but this idea of culture as a donation to a specific national, transnational, or ideological form. And it really started with 
the story that I read somewhere that Oscar Niemeyer came to Paris after the right-wing putsch in Brazil, and that coincided with the French communists starting to lose power and prestige and looking into rebuilding their image. So Oscar Niemeyer was said to have constructed the French communist headquarters in Paris as a gift. So this was the kind of the start of the story. And later on, we through interviews, we realized this was not really a gift whatsoever that he did, that he was actually paid for the job. But in a way that kind of like pointed to even more questions around it of why even call culture gift or why call these buildings gifts if they were not gifts. So after Niemeyer, I decided we would add a number of different architectures that were all considered gifts and from different time periods made to different, sometimes ideologically contrived positions, and that we would film, we would make a film within all those architectures where all these architectures would come together as a seemingly singular architectural stage. So we have the futurist Oscar Niemeyer Dome, the headquarters of the French communists in Paris. We have the United Nations Palace in Geneva, which is also a gift constructed by all the member states of the League of Nations. And then we have Mount Budujla, which is also a gift. It was a communist party assembly meeting hall, more like a monument on top of a mountain in Bulgaria. And it's now derelict. And it was a gift by the people to, to the communists. Then we have the Museum of Yugoslavia in Belgrade, which was a gift to Tito by Tito to house all his gifts donated to him by the people and the heads of states and so on. We have, of course, the Palace of Culture and Science in Warsaw, which was a gift by Stalin to the Polish people. So these are the buildings that somehow come together in the, in the film to construct this seemingly singular architectural theatrical space where then the narrative unfolds. And the narrative is pretty simple. It's quite a traditional, uh, let's say, kind of fable-like apparatus. So the story is we hear that the nation is broken and a gift to heal it must be found. And uh, we encounter four fundamental freedoms. We have freedom from want, freedom from speech, worship, and fear. So these four fundamental freedoms are drawn from a speech that Franklin Roosevelt made to entice America to enter the Second World War. And this was a speech which he rewrote about 11 times. And on the fourth rewrite, these four freedoms come in. So this was his sort of carrot for the nation to try and convince them to enter the war uh, with this prospect of a brighter future. So our four freedoms meet and they decide they will hold a competition to find this perfect gift of culture to heal this divided nation. And um, they invite three competitors, three men, three allegories. And these are allegories of art, music and architecture. And the three men then describe the idea for their perfect gift. And again, we're using here found archival uh, material based on very different ideologues, politicians who were arguing for very specific looks or aesthetic feelings of the art or architecture or music that they were promoting. And we came quite far with the project. We managed to film in Paris, in Geneva and in Bulgaria. So at the moment, we are stuck in time, as many, many practitioners, unfortunately. And, you know, as I mentioned before, I think it's really, there's a big question for these type of productions of how do we go forward and, you know, how also projects that were caught in this in-between situations can thwart and what they could do. Because 
of course, this crisis is so unprecedented and so unexpected that it will, of course, it will change the context of how these artworks are perceived by the audiences as well. So the idea that I started looking at, which was, you know, how culture was considered a gift to the nation is now obviously, you know, being reformatted in a way under the whole, you know, question of does culture even matter anymore? Can a culture be a gift anymore? You know, so we are now with all the producers resitting and redebating and trying to also use this as a kind of contem contemplative time in a way as well to move the project forward. So we are starting to work on a publication. We are extremely lucky because we have wonderful partners. So Flamin from London are my executive producer in London. And then we have Steyrscher Herbst, who showed the first chapter of the film last September. And the kind of the godfather, if you want, of the project is Mac Leon, so the Museum of Contemporary Art in Lyon, who is supposed to premiere the film within my solo exhibition in January next year. And we'll be working with Arnolfini in Bristol, Museum of Contemporary Art in Ljubljana, and uh, Museum Stuki in Vuj. So with all these partners, we're now trying to reassess, you know, the situation to really produce almost an organism, I would say. It's kind of becoming quite something more than just a film or an artwork. It really wants to become an organism, a platform for discussion of where do we as cultural producers of content sit and, you know, how are we implicit in, in what is to come? Yeah, I mean, that's something I've always found really interesting about your work is Screenings or exhibitions are often accompanied by an extensive programme of discussion. And of course, I came to Baltic in Gateshead in 2018 when you had a solo exhibition to talk about your film Nada Part 3, in particular the exhibition and the issues around soft power that were, were raised there. How important to you are these discussion programmes around your work? Do you always insist on them or are they something that curators and galleries tend to suggest to you, are they a fundamental, integral part of the work or something extra? They're absolutely fundamental. It's quite unfortunate that, you know, in the past few years, we really see that obviously live performance and symposia and conferences have become very difficult and costly for public institutions to put up. And I must say that Baltic has done incredibly well in this surrounding program, you know, around this work, because of course, you know, all these projects that that we, we create together with my collaborators, of course, they're very complex, but I wouldn't say they're complicated. And that, that's a big difference. And that's why I really love to work with clever curators who understand this, because I think it's, and even more so now, we are really, really in a danger of this notion of dumbing down audiences, which I think we cannot allow to happen. And we're seeing this in education, we're seeing this in art schools, and it's permeating right the way through into extremely amazing public institutions. Um, I was super lucky to be able to work with Cooper Gallery in Dundee last December. And Sophia Howe created this incredible marathon symposium, departing from the themes that my work was raising. And she really, this was, I think, the most successful case study, I would say, that I've seen in action that really functioned. And she brought together a community choir composed from immigrant women from Glasgow. And then she had artists, film and video performances by artists. She had the blacklisted Scottish workers. You know, it was really this proper coming together, really a proper platform where, you know, art and life were to completely informing each other and creating this exchange, which, you know, we're always talking about, but it happens so rarely. So I, I do think it's possible. 
And I think it's incredibly vital. And for example, you know, my work really does relay a lot. It does pick up a lot from archives, but I don't use the archives within my work. And that started a bit from this kind of quite principal point of, you know, I'm not going to use somebody else's material because I know that people tend to look at things because they have this amazing archival footage. And it was almost a bit of a principle sort of resilience to doing that. So what I try to do is use and publish these archives within publications as primary documents. So I try to then, you know, within publications, make a space to invite researchers to write about their research and connect it to these projects that we create together. So we have worked with Vladimir Kulic, for example, in such a way. Vladimir is an amazing professor of architecture in Iowa University at the moment in America. He was also the co-curator of the MoMA exhibition on Yugoslav modernism, together with Martino Sierli. And uh, Dubroka Sekulic, for example, she's also an amazing writer based in Graz that I have worked with a lot. And she had also extensively worked on um, non-aligned histories and architecture surrounding that. So we somehow try to bring all these situations together. But then also, you know, the aim of these projects is to not have the usual suspects always together, bunched up together, but that we really open it up. So this is also why, you know, I really enjoyed working with you. We also worked with uh, Erica Balsam. She, she wrote a wonderful essay that is published in the NADA book, more concentrating obviously on the films. We had essays by Jane Randell, Lina Joverovic. So they are all London-based, working at Bartlett and Birkbeck universities. So that's kind of a mode of resilience that I've tried to create as a way of practice that doesn't need to be then reliant on, on gallery systems. Yeah, which brings me on to my final question, actually. You've touched on this several times already in the conversation, but I think it's good to talk about this in depth. And this is some of the difficulties in creativity raised by the coronavirus crisis. And it'd be nice for me to just talk for a moment here about the reasons why I'm doing this series of interviews at this point. I mentioned them in the first episode in this series with the artist Salona Sagar, but I think it's nice to recap on them a bit. You know, I have ever since the beginning of the lockdown in particular, which actually started slightly earlier for me because I caught cold the week before the lockdown. So I was self-isolating before that. But ever since the beginning of the lockdown, I've been having a lot of anxieties about the difficulties of continuing to be creative. It is difficult because... I don't quite understand what world I'm going to be writing into on the other side of this. You talked earlier about feeling frozen in time. And of course, for a big project like The Gift, which relies on you filming in these locations across Europe, that's very understandable. But even for me as a a writer, just still working at home, actually finding it very difficult, it's very hard to structure my time and to be creative around other pursuits in a way that I normally am. Art feels impotent in this situation in some ways, especially because the art that I make And the writing I do doesn't deal with the epidemic, but everything that doesn't deal with it feels somewhat superfluous. And so I've been doing this series of interviews, partly because I know that people do want things to listen to, to read, to think about that aren't necessarily just about the coronavirus crisis, but the structure of these interviews does allow me to talk about the context. We are talking on the 7th of April 2020, and of course last night our uh, beloved Prime Minister Boris Johnson was admitted to intensive care, so it really heightens and really intensifies the sense of, of ongoing 
crisis and the the ongoing uncertainty. And something else you've talked about here is an issue around the lack of trust in cultural institutions due to a lack of support they've been showing for artists. And that's a lack of support that comes through government funding models. Of course, in London, we have lots of concerns about which small art galleries are still going to exist on the other side of this, which cinemas, which bookshops and publishers, which gig venues, etc. How many of them are going to be bankrupted by this situation it's very hard to know what cultural infrastructure we'll be working with on the other side of this and that lack of trust is heightened by the fact that you know in the UK there have been horrendous cuts to arts funding ever since 2008 actually even before the financial crisis and before the collapse of the new Labour government but particularly in the last 10 years and I know that there was a new government elected in Slovenia not too long before this all happened that represented quite a sharp move to the right for the country's politics bring it in line with certain other post-socialist countries in the former Eastern Bloc, so Poland and Hungary. So I wondered if you could talk a bit about your feelings about all of this, how you've responded creatively or not to this current crisis. And I know you um, you also have a, a daughter to take care for. So there are issues for you just practically in terms of childcare through all of this that I, for example, don't have to deal with. So I just wondered if we could conclude the show by talking about how you were you were feeling about the current situation and what might come out the other side of it. I think you completely hit the nail on the head there. Of course, we don't know what we're going to end up at the other side. Who is our audience? How will we reach it? Because obviously there's always a bit of a gap between, you know, making something or even, you know, writing a story by the time it's published and it's out there, this takes time. So, you know, will the audience, what will be the situation for the audience of, upon its receipt? You know, is it, these are all like really, really fundamental questions, which I think fill us all with in, extreme anxiety. But apart from the corona situation, the point of political shifts to the right, I think, are extremely more dangerous. You know, the epidemic will, you know, at some point it will end. We will wake up on the other side, but, you know, how will the world look politically? That is what is extremely worrying for me personally. That's where I'm kind of like trying to head with, you know, kind of thinking about how we could make ourselves more resilient to that. And of course, you know, uh, the, the former East is a really great Petri dish to be looking at what happened in Poland, what happened in Hungary. Now, Poland is an interesting case study because they were not, you know, they weren't, um, the right-wing government was not cutting, from what, from what I understand, they were not cutting cultural funding straight away. They only started recently. So they were kind of leaving culture on its own, but from what I understand, the, you know, they were trying to then diminish the audiences. So, you know, how the right-wing governments then deal with culture, how do they attack it or how do they try to thwart it or change it and so on? They're very different tactics. Now, Hungary, of course, it's, you know, it's just, you know, the axe straight into the head. And what happened in Slovenia is, was actually an accident. <laughs> we had, uh, you know, a coalition government and the left left because they, they were a bit offended because the coalition did not um, stick to the rules that were agreed on. And when this happened, the right wing swift in when nobody was looking. What is, if I can say, kind of good in this situation is that the right wing government really quickly showed its face. So I hope that, you know, after this is all over, the situation will return to semi-normality in terms of that, because of course they're trying to turn the country into a military dictatorship, you know, overnight when nobody's looking and when nobody can leave their balconies. 
And in terms of how government funding goes, it's extremely dire. I mean, for artists, so, you know, I'm, I come from a wrong country. I cannot get any financial support from Slovenia because I'm Slovenian. I'm not British. I can't really get proper support here. Arts Council have been absolutely amazing, I must say. But of course, they're cutting grants now. I have no idea how this will go forward. Loads of artists that work in these typologies of practices are teaching. But of course, we all know that arts education in Britain will be decimated and lots of jobs will be lost there as well. So we are definitely, you know, kind of coming into a new a new paradigm. But again, you know, I think everybody will be at this ground zero. You know, we will all be on the same boat. And I think, you know, when this same boat sales, you know, this is where we do need the solidarity. And I do think these kind of communal practices or attempts at creating this kind of quite rolling snowballs, as my friend Alessandro Vincentelli calls us, you know, we pick up like-minded people on the way. And that's the beautiful part. And I think that's why I ended up going into art in the first place. And it should remain a creative space to play and to think and to be supportive to each other. And if that's not happening, then, you know, we, we are definitely in the wrong field. And we might end up thinking that, you know, and that's also okay. We might end up going into a different field and that's okay. So, you know, I think it is early days. I'm still continuing to work on what I can, on picking up the pieces. I'm starting to try and work on smaller smaller scale sort of quarantine projects, which I think all, all, all artists are trying to do. And, you know, trying to find pleasure in those and absurdity as well you know and it's a bit like you know what it really reminded me that this lockdown it reminded me of how it feels having a baby you are just exhausted you're not quite sure what you're just exhausted but you end up laughing at yourself so many times and and that feeling i think is a potential new creative space well, that feels to me like a really nice place to conclude. I look forward to seeing what you come out with on the other side of this quarantine period, these smaller projects that you've been talking about. And of course, I look forward to you getting back to work on The Gift and seeing the finished product of the film that we've worked on together. And I, you know, I feel confident that you will finish the work and I'm looking forward to it. So we're going to end the show there. So all that remains for me to do is say thank you to Yasmina for a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Julia. It was a big pleasure. Absolutely. For me too. Listeners, as I said at the top of the show, you can subscribe to the programme at patreon.com slash sweet212, or you can make a one-off donation at donorbox.org slash sweet-212. You can find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash sweet-212, and find us on Twitter at sweet underscore 212. That's all from us for now. We're going to have sessions coming up with the writers Lars Ayer and Joanna Walsh and the artist Abbas Sahedi. I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. Thank you for listening. Take care and see you all soon. Goodbye. <laughs>